Today we'll finish what's been a three-week series to start this year off on some of our, our core kind of vision and values for, for this church. Um, and they all come uh, from this chapter 61 and uh, from the prophet Isaiah. So two weeks ago we talked about hope, uh, with that, that we want to be uh, a hopeful people um, oriented towards this vision of God's future. Uh, last week, Sarah uh, spoke about healing um, in this, this process of, of individual and corporate healing by which God uh, reclaims and restores his creation. And today we'll talk about hospitality. So I want to invite Jack Lyons up to read from the second half of Isaiah 61, verses 5 through 11. Foreigners will stay and shepherd your sheep, and strangers will be your farmers and vine dressers. You will be called the priest of the Lord, ministers of our God, they will say about you. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and fatten yourself on their riches. Instead of shame, their portion will be double. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. They will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. I, the Lord, love justice i hate robbery and dishonesty i will faithfully give them a wage and make with them an enduring covenant their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants among the peoples all who see them will re recognize that they are people blessed by the lord i surely rejoice in the lord my heart is joyful because of god because he has clothed me with clothes of victory wrapped me in a robe of righteousness like a bridegroom in a priestly crown and like a bride adorned in jewelry as the earth puts out its growth and his garden grows its seed, so that the Lord will grow righteousness and praise before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Nothing happened there. That's great. So this week, I read um, a blog post, um, which was kind of a, a withering blog post that I, I took to heart. Uh, you see the, the title of, of this uh, was that American, quote, Christianity has failed. <laughs> that's when you're a pastor and that's your career, your calling, your past, present, and future. If that blog post is true, that's probably not a very good thing, right? American Christianity has failed. It talked about um, how we sing these songs, but we don't really mean them. In particular, it, it picked out a song that we've sung before together, and it, it talked about how American Christianity, and I think what it means by that is, is a, a type of Christianity, but also probably the, the broad um, umbrella of, of Christians in America are able to sing things like keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise. And then it said in the article, meanwhile, there are people who are literally being overwhelmed by waves <laughs> that we're keeping out. Or, or the, the line from that same song, spirit lead me, lead me where my trust is without borders. And the author said, then how come borders have become so important to us? <laughs> I don't think this was just an indictment on Hillsong. I don't think it was an indictment on Hillsong churches. That's probably another 
blog posts and another sermon. But what I think this author, and, and I take it to heart, and, 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 and the thing, when you read these, these, these uh, posts or articles or books, or, or when someone face-to-face confronts you with something that is hard, um, it's really easy to like jump on the outside of that and be like, yeah, those people are terrible, and that doesn't include me. Um, but it's a little harder to jump in and say, well, that, well, that kind of does include me. That kind of includes us. It's a little harder um, to let that criticism land and realize that many of the things that we sing and say that we are don't really wind up uh, portrayed in the way we act or the, or the way we orient towards others. So then enter that reading that Jack brought to us so so well the second half of Isaiah 61 I think even for that we read that text so much like I I read that text so much because it's so energizing to to who we are together and 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 what we hope to become and, and what we're hoping towards even as we're brutally realistic about what's going on here and now that if we're not careful, it's lost on us just how scandalous and how surprising this vision of God's future is. First off, foreigners and strangers will be taking care of your stuff. Like That's what the, the prophet's saying here. And I don't think that's typically in the Jewish imagination or in our imaginations a good thing. Like I don't think that's a good sign if... If uh, someone says, if you buy a house, for instance, maybe you're a first-time homeowner and you buy a house and you say, I can see into the future 20 years and someone else will be paying the bills and answering your mail, that normally means that you don't have much of a space in that future that you've probably imagined for yourself. It means probably that your people have been defeated or taken over. And this is actually something that Israelites are pretty familiar with, especially as Isaiah is writing, this is their reality of, of people in exile. But Isaiah speaks a new reality into their imaginations. Their old categories have to kind of fall and crumble and be rewritten because the future that God has for them sees them flourishing. There's there's no other way to read this chapter in that this is a hopeful, positive view of the future. And yet, strangers will be tending your flocks and foreigners will be handling your vineyards. Their future is not going to be as just as victorious masters or as defeated slaves we're reading this right, the first half of Isaiah and the second half, their future is going to be as hospitable neighbors. That's the future. Like, we can be future people now. Isn't that crazy? Like, we just have to learn how to do this really hard thing that's going to take the rest of our lives to learn how to do. In this future that God has for them, if they just simply enter into it, if we just simply enter into it, will earn us a reputation as a people blessed by God. A people blessed by the Lord. And within that little phrase, that sounds kind of precious to us if we're not careful, but within that is this giant story of God forming a people around Abraham 
in one of the more surprising stories in the Bible uh, about him coming to a 100-year-old man and saying, your 90-year-old wife is going to have a baby. And then they laugh and they name their kid after laughter because that's so ridiculous. And he says, and you will be blessed and you will bless others. Your blessing will leak over and extend to all the earth and they will be blessed because I have blessed you. The other day, Noah came home from school where they had heard this story, and, and she was very positive that Nana was going to have a baby. Um, <laughs> and Nana laughed, right? And, and, and so I was like, okay, we got to cut out of this story. You're, you're like contributing to how this story is going, and I don't really like that. But if we can enter into this future reality even now, We'll earn that reputation of people blessed by the Lord. We'll, we'll, we'll be seen as a people of, of great connection, networkers, reconcilers. We'll be kind of, kind of empowerers. After all, that's what priests do. They connect humanity to God and God to humanity, so it's, it's not surprising that in the next couple lines it starts to talk about Israel as a, a nation of priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. And that's not even what they're saying about themselves, that's what others are saying about them. This week in our mustard seed group, we explored this illustration of, of what humanity's role and calling is through this this kind of this illustration of an, of an angled mirror and I made a, a picture of it to hopefully help us that that our role is this angled mirror and probably my perspectives are a little off but that is how we image God how, how we show God, and, and when it says in Genesis that God created them in God's image, male and female, God created them, that we serve this reflective role that somehow shows God, you can't see the top is God above there, it's always up there, um, <laughs> that shows God and reflects God to creation. But at the same time, in, in almost like a, a prism sort of way that we gather up creation's praise and, and very specifically are the way in which, and when we're doing our jobs and when we're who we're supposed to be, are, are the ones who are gathering creation's praise up and giving it back to the creator. Where this gets messed up is that we're, we're often fractured, we're we're scattered or, or, or maybe our angle is tilted kind of in on ourselves so that praise doesn't get back to the creator. It just either splinters off into a million directions or it just turns in on ourselves. We, we rarely ever get both of these twin tasks right, either, either understanding who God is and that calling or, or, or gathering up uh, creation's praise towards its creator. We, we often act with selfishness or, or violence. We even this morning lamented the violence that's happening with people who bear God's image. And, and we turn, we turn that, that image, we turn that reflection in on ourselves. 
But the gospel, the good news, and Paul talks about this in Colossians, is that we put on the new self, the new nature that's being renewed. This renewal has started. That's being renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. This mirror, this angled glass that right now we see through darkly, then gets remade, and it's being remade. And this happens because God sent someone to remake it. Sent someone as a priest, as that go-between to occupy that middle space. He sent Jesus to reset our picture of what it means to image God to creation and to reflect very good but broken creation back to God. To represent God and then to represent creation. You can see how this this, uh, Hebrews calls Jesus the great high priest who is able to empathize with us yet who is without sin, who's felt every single thing we've ever felt or could feel, but was without sin. You can see how Jesus might display the sort of surprise of this Isaiah prophecy. That our neighbors are going to consider us those sorts of priests. Renewed people. Oaks of righteousness putting on full display God's glory. And then when this happens, it's not a zero-sum game because this isn't just for us, but the result is overflow. It's, it's abundance. Jesus enters in as this, as this God-man, the perfect priest who does what humanity can't possibly do and is the fundamental expression of God's hospitality towards us. When we say hospitality, wipe out those pictures of like napkin rings and Martha Stewart stuff. Like Jesus is what God's hospitality is about. God making room for us. God inviting us into God's eternal life. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's this, that twofold reality at play as we grow together towards this calling of hospitality. We don't just do hospitality because it's the nice thing to do or because it's fun and we like to throw parties or like to eat at every turn like we do here. We don't do it because it works. We do it because hospitality is ingrained in how God is made and how God is remaking this world. That's why we do hospitality. And hospitality means that Jesus is standing as a priest and showing us how to be priest. And so I think to do this, we, we need to, to look at Jesus from each of these two angles, right? Jesus stands in the middle, and we approach Jesus as a priest. So there's these two this twofold reality to the gospel, and this has everything to do with hospitality, everything to do with our calling together. First, I think for us, growing in hospitality means 
being met by the priest Jesus when we were strangers. Think about that. Being met by the priest Jesus while we were a stranger to God. God welcomed us when we were strangers. God offered us space where change, transformation, renewal could take place. It's a change that would make us his people. When we were still a long way off, even when we had estranged ourselves from his love. In Jesus, God welcomed the refugee into his family. Imagine that. Like, on a cosmic, we can't conceive of this on a local or national level. Imagine that on a cosmic level, that God welcomed the refugee into his family. This reformed family then eventually causes the Apostle Paul to proclaim there is now no longer Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, <laughs> barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all and is in all. That's why this keeps popping up in our gospel stories. If you read your Bible, just crack open the New Testament in these gospel stories. And you see over and over Jesus in this position to receive strange characters and to be the recipient of hospitality of strangers. A major thread throughout the Old, but especially the New Testament. The same surprise and the same irony of Isaiah's story, that stranger shepherd and the the foreign vine dresser, shows up in gospel irony and reversal in Jesus' ministry. You know, when he's sharing food with sinners or tax collectors, when he invites himself into Zacchaeus' home, maybe when he's dining with the religious elite, or becoming the life of the wedding party. I mean, the guy who's turning water into wine is going to be a pretty popular person at a wedding. Jesus, in word and deed, is showing us that when God is at work in the world, it looks like surprising hospitality and welcome. Scholar Christine Pohl tells us about something key about hospitality. She says, For most of the church's history, faithful believers located their acts of hospitality in a vibrant tradition. Like They didn't make this up. They stepped into a a tradition in which needy strangers, Jesus, and angels were welcomed and through which God's people were transformed. So if our first assumption is that we are the strangers and we meet Jesus the priest, The second assumption, the second angle that we we get is that somehow, and this is so crazy, this this sounds almost like blasphemy, what I'm going to say right now, that we get to be the priest sometimes, and when we meet a stranger, that stranger is Jesus. That's crazy, right? That we are the priest, and Jesus is the stranger, Jesus surprises us with this, that we might meet him in our service of those 
in whom we offer a little help. The gospel irony shows up in that parable on the end of Matthew. I I think there's a, a, a clip of that from Matthew 25 that the trap gets sprung, that any help or hospitality offered or not offered to the least, the last, the littlest, the lost, or the closest to death was or wasn't offered to the king. When Jesus starts telling stories, get ready for a, like this M. Night Shyamalan surprise ending, right? In, in which you should have seen it coming the whole time, and then it's like sprung on you, right? It says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. He's, all, he's talking about, through this fictional king, right? When I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they say, when did this happen? I, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Ugh. Like, let's go back to the blog post, right? (laughs) Or maybe you remember another tricky tale that Jesus spins in Luke 10, a story of the Good Samaritan that we all know. There's, There's a man injured and left for dead on the side of the road to Jericho, which we all know is a rough road, and we probably wouldn't blame that priest or the Levite who saw him and walked, skipped to the other side of the road because they didn't want to risk. They didn't want to risk their reputation or even their their vocation to serve God's people by the law. And the one that helps this man is the Samaritan, the half-breed, the incorrect worshiper, (laughs) the not likely hero of the story. But... What if we're neither the Samaritan, the priest, nor the Levite? Maybe we're to be the ones that identify with the person in the ditch, right? Like, that's the tricky thing about all these stories. We have all these characters, and everyone volunteers like you're in elementary school for the good roles, and no one typically volunteers for the role that you're supposed to be in Jesus' stories. What if we're the ones waiting for someone to save us? St. Augustine and many of the early church fathers and mothers heard this parable loud and clear. They said that that man in the ditch is the one who the devil has accosted on the road of life. He stripped us of our life with God and beaten us with our own sin within an inch of our life. We're dead in our transgressions unable to pull us out of the ditch, waiting for intervention, waiting for mercy. And the gospel is that we've found it. That mercy has broken in upon us, and while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, that strange God-man, dismissed and unrecognized, came for us. And pulled us out of that ditch. This is the good news. The hero of the story is not us necessarily. But is the least likely Christ. But on the other hand. 
What if the one left in the ditch for dead is Jesus? <laughs> Again, these stories have so much mileage to them if you read them well. There's another side about this. This reminds me of this icon I came across this week uh, made by this Franciscan priest. And in his description of the icon, he says, the, the icon does not make it clear which side of the fence Christ is on. Is he imprisoned or are we? <laughs> Again, springing that trap. Those two angles of which we approach Christ as a stranger or as the priest. I think if we're going to get used to this twin reality, meeting Jesus as we desperately need and experience the hospitality of God, and meeting Jesus as we offer hospitality with generosity out of God's abundance, I think if we do it imperfectly and over and over, we'll, we'll develop these kind of stubborn convictions. Like these things that'll make us predisposed to not have to think so hard about doing it next time. That's kind of how habit works. That's also how virtue works. And I think there's, there's kind of two kind of stubborn convictions that, that I get from this, from, from this, this twin reality and this, this life of hospitality. And you'll learn these more and more. First conviction is that there is more than enough. If hospitality is even possible, we have to stubbornly insist that there is more than enough. Because we'll never open our door if we don't have enough room. We'll never buy someone a meal if we don't feel like we have enough money. <laughs> we'll, never, we'll never do anything, and there's always a good excuse that there's not enough. Like this week, again, in the fabulous world of the internet, there's been all these amazing uh, Holocaust memes about uh, specific pictures of, of men and women um, in the Holocaust who were turned away at the borders of America and who wound up dying. Like shortly thereafter, they were interned and died. And, and we obviously understand the, the point of these. I think, I think we can understand them also in that um, the idea if we're, if, if we're stub stubbornly insisting that there's enough, like it should be less likely that we'll turn someone away for that. But I think the other side of this, this conviction towards abundance is that not only is there enough, there's, there's more than enough. Not only, not only do we have enough to be generous with, but, but this Isaiah picture has, has all this room for possibility. All these unanticipated things that, that we couldn't come up with on our own. A few years back, there's a book written called The Geography of Genius. It's not a, it's not a Christian book, but um, this, this author, it's kind of like a travelogue. And his, his main um, goal is to visit all these amazing places in the world in which there, there were these spurts of genius, like these locations, like, like Renaissance Rome, where all this amazing art and thought and invention and, and all this was happening during this very small length of time, or, or Silicon Valley, 
uh, several years ago and where there's just this explosion. And he goes all these places and, and he highlights historic figures and he talks uh, about some of the components in these places that make it more likely that there's gonna be creativity and flourishing and innovation, all these things that, that we, we try so desperately. But like, in, especially in this city, in Durham, these are, these are unequivocal goods that we go after and spend a lot of time and money on. And one of the primary components of each of these places vary cross-culturally, Eastern, Western, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, was that there was typically an influx of immigration shortly before a boom in creativity and innovation. Like he talked about, um, and he talked about some specific characters. Like he talked about the nurse uh, Marie Curie, who immigrated from Poland to France. In, in Paris, uh, she lived in a time of amazing creativity and medical advances. Or he, he talked about Sigmund Freud, who, who went actually from the outskirts of Austria into concentrated Vienna, where everything was happening in Vienna. But this even applies to the, um, some kind of unintentional things like immigration into India and, and in which they experienced the Bengal Renaissance. Or post-World War II Japan, and Japan had historically been one of the most closed countries and by weakness and necessity they, they experienced an influx and, and now we know Japan is this cosmopolitan, cutting edge technological society. In this view, though, and, and in some of these findings of geography of genius, we, we understand this kind of Isaiah 61 viewpoint that not only is there enough, but these foreigners will contribute to your flourishing and you theirs. Isaiah 61, if we remember, says, you'll eat the fats of the nations and they will call you blessed. This is some sort of crazy, reciprocal, surprising relationship. Not just necessity or mercy that we're being hospitable, but anticipation and opportunity. There's more than enough. Inviting someone in or making room for someone in your life, even on a very small local neighborhood or friend level, is not a danger or a sap on your resources but you do it with the firm belief that you're going to be gifted by their presence. With creativity, with challenge, and with opportunities. There's more than enough. And the second, the second kind of stubborn insistence that you have to have if you're, if you're gonna have like a sustainable life of hospitality is that God is always surprisingly at work. Like that is, that is a firm belief in God's sovereignty and, his tr and trust in him. And, and it is also a mode of following Jesus that begs what, again, St. Paul would say, our, our following with fear and trembling as we live out our faith. That in terrible circumstances, God is surprisingly at work in that. It doesn't mute or erase what's going on, but Christ has promised to be with us even until the end of the age. 
I think this would revolutionize uh, our ability to be hospitable if we understood this. If, because A, I think it expands our definition of what it means to be hospitable. Things that once were deficits are now assets to us. Like, think about how this applies to your work <laughs> and to some of the, some of the boundaries or some of the, the limits that you have with work. Think if instead you embrace those as assets or places where God might be working in and among your coworkers. That space between you and your coworker is a space where God might be working, where Jesus might be present. Or I think about some of the, the major issues that, that even in this last week, and I think when we, when we think about crisis pregnancies or unborn children, it, like, I think there's, there's a place for us to, to just completely be dedicated to the fact that God is at work in that. Despite the circumstances, despite the politics around all of it, if we're attending to and being attentive to God's presence, we want to continue to see how what God's work is going to be. Or I think about in in conflict, in many of the conversations that have that have bubbled up and have bubbled over in the last year regarding um, Black Lives Matter or racial strife and conflict, like a firm commitment that God is at work in the middle of these confusing, intense times will allow us, hopefully, to listen better, <laughs> certainly to continue our conversation, definitely not to discard something out of hand that you don't understand or don't agree with because God might be at work. It's one of my greatest fears in life is that I'm just going to miss what God's doing. Like, it's, it's my, like, spiritual FOMO, right? Fear of missing out on what God is doing. That, that's got to be part of a posture of hospitality that, that can go wrong. Uh, I, I'm not the model on this, but just that insistence to stick it through and to see what God is doing and then to participate in what God is doing to heal and reconcile this world. I think we're going to stop there and I'm going to pray. Um, will you pray with me? Lord God, giver of life, giver of new life, help us join in on what you're doing in this world. As individuals, but, but definitely not solely as individuals. Help us do this together. Help us attend to your presence in our midst with the convictions that there's more than enough. Because every good and perfect gift comes from you. Help us stubbornly insist, even when there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, that you're at work in this world and in our lives, in situations of great hurt, in very complicated situations and conversations, 
in times when we're tempted to throw in the towel and give up, to disconnect or to numb ourselves. Help us attend to your presence in our midst. We thank you, Father. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.